Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's podcast, we discuss Dominic Cummings versus Boris Johnson. And you ask us, why were the protests against the Super League not policed in the same way as the Sarah Everard vigil? So we're kicking off with a particularly difficult week for Downing Street with the row between the Prime Minister's former top aide, Dominic Cummings, rumbling on. There's an explosive story in the mail, which suggests um, from a source that Boris Johnson said he would rather, quote, let the bodies pile high in their thousands than have to order a third lockdown. That's something that he's reported to have said in October. And obviously, this has ramped up the tensions about who's leaking what from from within Downing Street at that time. And the expectation is that we're going to hear more from Dominic Cummings and and more about the story about how Downing Street's flat refurbishment was paid for with Labour calling for transparency on on the subject. So... I've noticed that a lot of senior Tories who are asked about this on the radio, etc., are trying to dismiss it as Westminster tittle-tattle that the general public aren't interested in. How fair is that and how much of this is, is you know, truly important stuff that gives us an insight into how the government is run and into the coronavirus response as well? Stephen? The important question are the stories about the flat. Mm. I think whether or not he said it, and of course he has now denied saying it, it was fairly obvious that the um, the government did not want to have to lock down a third time in the autumn of 2020, and did so only very belated, yeah, kind of at the 11th hour, uh, having gone, oh, may- maybe we can have this weird Christmas truce. I think it's important because at some point, just as in 2018, we'd have, we'd have sat here and gone, Oh, every week, um, Remainers ask us when, well, like, you know, surely Labour can't continue to have a pro-Brexit policy or in some cases an ambiguous Brexit policy. And it's like, guys, that there ain't, ain't nothing ambiguous about Labour's Brexit policy. Then, you know, in February 2019, seven uh, then Labour MPs stood up and went, we're leaving. And a bunch of Remain voters up until that point had been sort of quite chill about Labour's Brexit position, or at least were willing to tell themselves Labour's Brexit position was something it wasn't. Sort of went, wait, wait a second. Is Labour pro-Brexit? <laughs> I don't think it would upend anyone's sense of who Boris Johnson is to learn that he would have said something like this. 
I don't think it would upend anyone's sense of who Dominic Cummings and his allies are to learn out than he learn that he would have made up a like politically resonant and kind of yeah because it's the kind of like it is like three hundred fifty million pounds a week. It feels true, right? It feels true. It's got that kind of tangibility where we're all everyone kind of goes, oh yeah, they denied it. Really. But I think it's the kind of thing that could matter if it does mean that instead of everyone thinking, oh, yeah, the coronavirus is very difficult for all governments and, you know, look how well our vaccine rollout is going compared to almost everywhere else, to going, oh, yeah, do you remember December? Oh, do you remember all those awful decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it could matter. I, I do think that that's, that's a really interesting point because it essentially... If you look at the delays before each of the three lockdowns, they actually dithered longer before each one. So there were more people in hospital with coronavirus each time. You know, you can you can make an argument about uh, the sort of public health and economic fallout of lockdowns and how difficult it is to balance that with trying to stop wards being overwhelmed with um, with COVID-19 patients. But that is essentially the policy that, that, that they wanted to pursue in each time a lockdown was a last minute, very reluctant thing, particularly around the time that this quote was supposed to have happened in October. There was so much briefing about how there might may, might be a circuit breaker lockdown in September for two weeks. The scientists were pushing for it. You know, that was it was almost like the lockdown that didn't come. You know, it, it, every Sunday you expected to read about it in the Sunday papers. It didn't quite, quite come to fruition. And that's because there were those splits in, in Downing Street. And they had, you know, they even brought those scientists, uh, the famous, you know, scientists who are who are anti-lockdown in for a Zoom meeting with Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak to give their perspective and to advocate for a non-lockdown approach. They were clearly trying to figure out how to justify not locking down again. So that is essentially what was happening. You know, okay, fine, the quote's very incendiary and uh, you have to be careful about drawing a direct link between people's political decisions and deaths. But these were, each time they failed to lock down, these were the lost days when cases were just spreading like wildfire and meant that there were more people in hospital with coronavirus as a result. So it is. it has that essential kernel of truth, even if it's not, a direct quote. And also the the polling throughout this crisis has shown that people do think that the lockdowns were late and, and the criticism mainly with the restrictions has been that they weren't strict enough. So that is, that's the type of thing that can lodge in, in, in it, it can chime with what the public already believe and it can, you know, it can stick in their heads as something that sounds true. And um, so I do think that's, particularly damaging. Alva, what do you, do you think that there will be lasting damage out of these leaks for the government? Yeah, I think so. Picking up on the the let the bodies pile high in their thousands point first. I actually think I I take Stephen's point about how maybe this, you know, this has a a ring of plausibility to it even though Downing Street has flatly denied it. But I actually think that what could be damaging about it is is the way in which it, it isn't necessarily baked into people's perceptions of Boris Johnson. I think my view of Boris Johnson stretching back long before he was prime minister is that um, there was a there was a really um, a really momentous interview with Boris Johnson. I can't remember if it was by Andrew Marr or Eddie Mayer on Andrew Marr's show, but it was a, this really seismic interview with Boris Johnson where he really went in hard on alleged lies, um, on sort of potential corruption, on 
on sort of issues around his anger. I think all in all, it, it portrayed Boris Johnson as a more serious and nasty character than he typically is portrayed in the media. I think that maybe people do think of him as careless and prone to not telling the truth, but sort of think of him in a slightly cuddly way. And I think that the thing that's different about this allegation is that A, it has obvious cut through because it's a very chilling statement. And that secondly, it adds a slightly new element or taps into a different element of criticisms of Boris Johnson that he isn't just careless, but that there can be a a kind of callousness to it. But I think actually the most important thing, even though I think that line, you know, has been denied, the big question now is whether there's a recording of it. Dominic Cummings has very much hinted that he does have recordings of these things, but it could all be made up. I think despite the immediate cut through of that line, the really big thing is the Downing Street flat. And Mm. I think the thing at the moment is that there are so many strands to this story that I think maybe the significance hasn't really been registered by people following it. And so it's, you know, that this kind of absurd line from conservative politicians dismissing it as tittle tattle kind of works for a while. If people don't really know what's going on with it, maybe they can just think of it as a Westminster obsession. But when you really look at it, what are we talking about? We're talking about the refurbishment of the Downing Street flat, which cost £58,000. Dominic Cummings alleges that Boris Johnson planned to have donors secretly pay for that renovation themselves and not to declare it, which would obviously fall below the standards expected of a prime minister, but would also potentially be illegal. And, you know, he has now footed that bill and we heard Liz Truss at the weekend asserting that he has footed that bill, but there are still questions about who paid it originally. There was a report in the Daily Mail that a donor paid it. Um, We don't have a register of interests making that clear. Liz Truss wasn't able to say over the weekend who had initially paid for it. And that, that just raises such serious questions that could be the thing if something about this story does really significantly damage Boris Johnson slash the Conservatives. It's this, because if he didn't pay it himself initially, as Dominic Cummings alleges, and someone else footed that original bill, was it declared to the Electoral Commission? And if it wasn't, um, did Boris Johnson slash the Conservative Party break electoral law? That's a really, a really big question and one that if everything that Dominic Cummings alleges is true and the answer mm. is yes to the questions I've just raised, then, the, then it's not really clear how Boris Johnson could continue as prime minister. And that's so that's a lot of ifs and questions. But I think that's the really serious thing at the heart of this. A lot of, a lot of the rest of it is a bit less tangible. But I think the important thing is that even if people aren't cut, aren't, aren't following that story at the moment, it's still there. And those questions need to be answered. They can't not publish that register of interests forever. It's massively overdue. Eventually, there need to be answers to those questions. And it's it's sort of hard to see, unless the answer to some of those questions is no. I think there's a really big issue there for the Conservatives, and it could be incredibly damaging.
so the, the thing about the flat is, is the thing we can say for certain is it, it ain't in his parliamentary register of interests. Now, obviously, a variety of things have been denied. We, we wait to get the full picture. But if, if it emerges that he really ought to have declared the, the loan on his parliamentary interest, he has already been chastised by the Parliamentary Standards Commission twice. And the question is, is, well, on the third time, do you end up being given a similar punishment to the one handed out to, say, Ian Paisley Jr. by the Standards Commission? Which oh, now, of course, that that meant that in the end, although Ian Paisley Jr. could in theory have been uh, recalled under the Recall of MPs Act, he wasn't. But in terms of sort of sit up and sit up and take notice sort of moments than cut through even though, you know, unless some kind of like very popular sort of face of anti-corruption could emerge as a candidate who could, you know, similar to Martin Bell in Tatton, sort of have everyone else stand down um, to run against uh, Boris Johnson. Although I think that recall would, would not ultimately be successful. It's certainly a huge moment in the life of a government if you have a situation in which in which the words Prime Minister and Recall of MPs Act 2015 are, are being used in the same sentence. I think the really damaging thing about the kind of Johnson versus Cummings stuff, you know, it is um, to use that phrase, then I worry, then uh, occasionally if I say it too much in Parliament, Albert will just reach up and beat me to death with my own laptop. It's a good peg. It's a great, it's a great excuse to go, oh, look, here's this story that, you know, the male in particular has really been going on about for ages. Look, here's a, here's another human face, and it's a human face that the readers of all stripes don't really like because he's the lockdown breaching dude. So I think it is, it is a problem. I do also think it speaks to the bigger the bigger kind of question, right, which is that at the moment, Boris Johnson is midway through sort of his latest regeneration, which in in many ways, I think, is typified not actually by any sort of big figures who people will have heard of, but by um, Johnny Mercer being replaced by Leo Doherty, but Leo Doherty being replaced by Alan Mack, which is essentially a move from a kind of sort of 2015 intake MP who the media have heard of, who's loudly disloyal, who, you know, tells it like it is, being replaced by a sort of ultra-loyal backbencher, has never, to my knowledge, asked a difficult question in the House of Commons of, of, a, of a government minister, right? And in some ways, that's been the story of Boris Johnson's past sort of six months, right? Moving away from being sort of like, hey, it's Boris, the Brexit radical, to, hey, I just would like my Downing Street to be able to like win parliamentary votes and, you know, do stuff. But the old world, as manifested in Johnny Mercer giving interviews going, everyone in Downing Street, yeah, everyone in this government lies, in these, you know, you know Don Cummings' blog post um, condemning the Prime Minister and saying that, you know, the flat may But the old world and he's discarded is kind of going, I'm sorry, wait a second, you think you can walk away from me? I made you. And maybe this won't be the time than the sort of, he, Boris Johnson fails to regenerate, but I do think this is is a kind of another sort of sign about what what when because that will happen at some point, right? And I think we are seeing what that some point looks like at the moment. I think there's another. Um, this is a sort of less serious side of it, but I think that the it's also particularly damaging just in terms of the the lighter stuff that cuts through the way that. Carrie Simons and Boris Johnson allegedly just didn't think that um, didn't think that the um, Downing Street flat decor was up to scratch, and it was a quote unquote John Lewis nightmare. I think is is actually really really funny and very damaging because most people 
think of John Lewis. I mean, we don't have John Lewis in Northern Ireland, but, you know, I know the reputation, have been to in England. And, you know, John, most people think of John Lewis as a, as a nice shop to decorate your flat with. So the idea that you would have to spend £58,000, which is more than most people earn in a year, getting rid of a John Lewis nightmare, I think... <laughs> You know, that has very easy cut through. It's really quite embarrassing. It's a little bit funny. It gave us, at the weekend, Liz Truss was asked about that. And she said, I think John Lewis is a brilliant shop. And (laughs) I just think it leads to some really awkward moments. It's not really the most important thing, but it is an element of, you know, the, of, of conservative strength, I suppose, that they played on slightly how posh quite a lot of them are. Um, that's a point Stevens made before about how David Cameron mm. um, portrayed himself as a kind of nice middle-class man rather than someone like really very substantially wealthy. And I think it's the same-ish with Boris Johnson. I think that maybe people don't mind about that kind of thing, but um, it does it does come across as a little bit just a little bit ridiculous and out of touch and um it's it's those kind of those lighter I think funny things you know texting Rishi Sunak having a drink with Matt Hancock your views on John Lewis I think those things are things that have very easy cut through and are not great for Boris Johnson I don't think that's his biggest challenge right now but I think it doesn't help no, I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think everyone, if there's something everyone in this country understands, it's the class connotations of where you, you know, where you shop for your food or where you buy your furniture and things like that. I remember once going to interview a minister, Alan Duncan, when he was a minister at the International Development Department. And he he was very proudly showing me his recently sort of renovated office. And he was so happy that he'd got all of these lovely bits of furniture from Ikea. And, you know, obviously mm-hmm. they, they can only use Ikea because you can't spend, you know, more than is value for money if you're, if you're, um, if you're working in, in, in a government department. So I, I do think those kind of things are thought about quite carefully behind the scenes. So it is it is a mask slipping in a sense. It's telling of, 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 uh, of the kind of prejudices or the kind of preferences that there are in, in that inner circle of people. And when you put that together with who's got whose mobile number, who's texting who, who's going for drinks with who, it does paint a picture of a of a chummy in crowd, but also of a, of a out of touch chummy in crowd. So I... I, I agree with you. I do think that that's a really important detail. And if you think about who inhabited the Downing Street flat before Boris Johnson and Carrie Simons, it was, of course, Theresa May, who, to her credit, did sincerely have the brand of just liking John Lewis decor and not being too flashy. She wasn't into the boys club of Westminster. She's untouched by any sort of lobbying or corruption scandals to date. Watch this space if there are anymore. But, um, you know, she's... she ousted people like George Osborne anyone from that sort of Cameroon boys club when she took office she has that you know middle class grammar school girl daughter of a vicar vibe um yeah eating the mold on the jam yeah exactly whereas I think that I think it's I think it's very revealing that it is it's the decor that she was happy with that has has had to be done over by Boris Johnson and Carrie Simons and that broader conservative image is being slightly tarnished too. And I think this is, you know, the kind of stuff which is slightly harder to define is the giving license for people to point at things which are um, not illegal, um, 
not necessarily wrong, but they have like a sort of weird smell to, of which um, a Conservative MP a couple of days ago WhatsApped me the link to the Who Can Make a Support Bubble page on gov.uk. And they were just like, I honestly, they said, I honestly don't see how uh, if if you if someone was asked about this on TV, they said, what, 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 they were just like, what is the loyalist answer to, to this question? Right. So these are the guide, the guidelines to who can make a support bubble. You can form a support bubble with another household of any size if you live by yourself, you're the only adult in your household who does not need continuous care, um, your household includes a child who is under the age of one or was under that age on the 2nd of December 2020. Now, if your child was over the age of one or was over that age on the 2nd of December 2020, you can form a social bubble for paid for childcare, but you can't form one for the purpose of uh, emotional support for you. Now, I'm obviously biased because a large chunk of my social circle God, I feel old, has children in that one to two bracket. I feel if I were to try and pitch it to them that after the age of one, they no longer needed the emotional support of being able to form a bubble with another parent, they might punch me. Fortunately, they wouldn't be able to get within distance of me technically in the law. But yeah, I I would be a bit concerned about their reaction if I pitched that to them. And why is it? What is the purpose of the wording of that support bubble, that that support bubble exemption other than the, oh, does the prime minister have a child under the age of one? Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I, I do just think there are lots of ways that this government is quite exposed on things like that, which they're not an article in their own right. They're not something that, yeah, as this MP said, right, this is not something and they were ever thinking, hmm, I wonder if I might be asked about this on local radio before. They said, the problem with this week is it license, or licenses all of those questions. Mm-hmm. Like, why does the government think that, you know, a one and a half year old is so much easier sort of on the on the brain to to look after and therefore you don't need the ability to form a social bubble and is there any link to the fact that the prime minister's latest child was under the age of one on the 2nd of december 2020 and i do think as you say alva like the stuff this this stuff does become quite damaging to the to the brand i think quite quickly If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. now it's time for a section we like to call you ask Ask us Us. we have a question from andy bradshaw today thanks for writing in um he asks about the football fan protests against the super league and why the met didn't go and arrest them all for breaching coronavirus regulations um we all saw what happened with the policing of the sarah everard vigil has anyone asked the met why the change in tactics alva 
this might not be a, a very interesting answer because I just think it's a good question and we don't have an answer to it. Um, that certainly social media is not the real world, but you there was a discernible anger on social media and also among people I know that recent protests about the Super League, um, but also actually the anti-lockdown protests that happened in London this weekend, those were both subject to much of a lighter touch policing than the Sarah Everard vigil. I mean, I wonder if, I, I, I would say probably in large part, it is to do with changes in coronavirus restrictions between the date of the Sarah Everard vigil and now. Um, but that couldn't be the whole story. It does feel deeply frustrating. I didn't go to the um, either to the Super League protests or to the Cranky Out. For those of you who don't follow the intricacies of uh, who um, misruns Arsenal Football Club, uh, Stan Cranky is the American billionaire and, and sometime Trump donor who um, is gradually running Arsenal into the ground. People very clearly were not observing social distancing. Now, yeah, all of the stuff about social distancing outside is is actually pretty nonsense, um, given what we now know about how it spreads. And it basically seems to be something which exists to be observed solely in the pictures of candidates for political office office standing awkwardly apart when they're like, great response on the doorstep for at Boris Johnson's plan or real to be out with at Keir Starmer spaced apart like they're some kind of weird band. Part of it is, as Alva says, that the laws have changed a bit since then. But the other part, I think, are, are two sort of, you know, perhaps quite boring, but I don't think it makes them any less important. One, I think, is just like a straightforward patriarchal thing, right? But I also think, and again, I know this is a sort of really typical hobby horse, one of the problems is that people in Westminster just aren't interested in good policing. Now, again, I didn't go to the cranky out protests, but I am I, friends with a lot of people who did. And it was pretty clear from, you know, from their yeah, WhatsApp messages from it, from the video one of them posted in like a cranky out WhatsApp group that I'm in. Then it was, you know, good natured, you know, fun posters, people having a nice time, people, people who were being perfectly safe protesting against um, an owner who they feel, in my view, rightly has, has been catastrophic for the for the club's moral standing and standing on the football field. And it was therefore uh, correct and appropriate policing to, to not uh, go in mob-handed. But yeah, there's this weird thing where one, no one in Westminster goes, okay, well, why did you do that, but not this? But also no one in Westminster is really ever that that interested in going, okay, well, this shows them these protests did not need to be bad-tempered. They did, you know, then there, there was the, the problems that emerged in the policing of were were about operational decisions, unless you think, and again, without wishing to, you know, defame any of my friends, the, the idea that people on the cranky out protest were, you know, more sober, um, more sober and less excitable than people at the Sarah Everard vigil in Clapham Common is, is obviously crazy. And I think it just comes back to that. We're not sufficiently interested in what good policing looks like beyond this kind of reflexive thing where people go like, oh, yeah, with 10,000 more of them. After the Sarah Everard vigil, there was a lot of there was a lot of discussion about how you know, how right it was for MPs to criticise the policing of the protest who had voted through the laws that kind of meant, the laws that the police are supposed to be upholding. And I suppose that 
if there was that engagement in good policing there and if it was in a good state at the moment, which which it doesn't really seem to be in a particularly good state, partly because of the confusion of the coronavirus laws constantly changing, but also because of various ways that the police are used as a political football every time an election comes along, then, you know, perhaps there would have been better communication about these things. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be giving off this impression to the public that there's one rule for one thing and another for another. But there has been light to policing on on various different protests on, uh, on different causes throughout the pandemic and I think this was another example of that which had many factors you know you've got the context of, of the laws changing the context of, of the actual pandemic um, changing you know that it's not very prevalent in the population at the moment and then of course you've got the political considerations which is the police got hammered last time they tried to impose the um the coronavirus laws very heavy-handedly and, and wrongly on the on the um, people at the the vigil so this time when it was a particularly populist issue you know in the sense that a lot of people cared about it and the government felt it needed to intervene etc you know they could have opened themselves up for similar criticism and they did say that they would be they would be thinking they would be reflecting on the the way that they approached it and there was a lot of conversation about how it was bad optics um what they did at that vigil so you know there may be a sense that is it worth is it worth another sort of reckoning with public opinion probably not um so i think there's a lot of different factors at play in 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 what happened but i i can definitely see the the frustration and it definitely does expose a deeper thing not just in the context of policing these these regulations, but also the relationship between politics and the police, which I do think is in a fraught state at the moment. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at PronounceSalva. And you can find me on Twitter at AntStephenKB. We're produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you want to ask us a question for the You Ask Us section, email in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.